One of my favourite ever quotes from just about anyone is from G.K. Chesterton. In describing the nature of humanity and what makes us flourish, he says, Man is not like a balloon floating free into the sky, nor is he like a mole burying deep into the earth, but rather he is like a tree with its roots firmly planted in the earth and its branches reaching high into the heavens. Hmm? You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Greetings everyone and great to have your company for today's chapter on the Myth Pilgrim. Today we're going to be lifted up by a million balloons and join Carl on his adventure to Paradise Falls. Since I've started the Myth Pilgrim, I've had at least three people request that I do an episode on Pixar's Up, but I've actually been a bit hesitant to touch this film because it's sort of the type of film that's already kind of speaks for itself and has the ability to be moving and inspiring already without needing commentary. Rarely does one see a film so universally powerful in such a subtle way. Nevertheless, having percolated on one of my favourite Pixar films ever, it would be my privilege today to offer some reflections on the major themes in Up, and in doing so shed light on some unusually difficult topics. For the glory of Up, with its 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, lies in its daring to tackle themes like death, grief, infertility, ageing, and of course, broken dreams. I mean, how often do you find a film that appeals to even young children that stars a grumpy old man in his twilight years? Surely there is some real movie magic going on in Up, which we will soon discover. But at first, as usual, here is a summary of the story. From a young age, our main character Carl is a huge Charles Muntz fan. Muntz, we learn through a newsreel footage, is a famous explorer who recently returned from South America, where he discovered a rare, magnificent bird. There's just one catch. Nobody believes him. So Muntz heads back to South America and becomes sort of obsessed with catching this bird to prove that his discoveries were legitimate. But back in America, young Carl becomes inspired by Charles Muntz and vows to be an adventurer too when he grows up. On his way home from the movie theatre, Carl meets Ellie, a young girl who's equally inspired by Muntz and all things adventuresome. They strike up a friendship, and Ellie makes Carl promise that one day he will take her to South America, especially to Paradise Falls, in a blimp. She pins a grape soda bottle cap on him to solidify their friendship, makes him cross his heart to keep his promise. She even shows Carl her secret adventure book, where there are plenty of blank pages to be filled after they arrive at Paradise Falls. Carl and Ellie's friendship grows, and they end up getting married, and then through probably the most moving five-minute montage in cinema history, (laughs) no exaggeration, we watch their life story unfold from the day of their wedding. Fixing up their dream home, picnicking on a hill, cloud spotting, dancing, and trialling and failing to have a baby. 
when they accept that they were not able to have children of their own, they decide on a new dream as a couple to save up enough money to fly to Paradise Falls, their childhood dream. They start saving their loose change in a jug marked Paradise Falls, but life keeps getting in the way of them actualizing their dream. Car problems, broken bones, and home repairs force them to continually dip into their savings. Decades pass and life continues on. Carl as a balloon salesman and Ellie as a zoologist until they get quite old. But just when they finally have enough money to fly to Paradise Falls and Carl buys a ticket to take his beloved there, Ellie becomes sick, very sick. Tragically, she passes away, leaving Carl alone with the house they had built together and the haunting memory of an unfulfilled dream. In his solitude, he's transformed from a love-struck, passionate man into an isolated, grumpy fellow. All of this is in the first 10 minutes, by the way, of the film alone. Okay. So one day, now the film properly starts, one day a young wilderness scout named Russell shows up on his porch, offering to help Carl so that he can earn his assisting the elderly badge. Um, Carl tells him to go away, but after Carl accidentally smacks a construction worker with his cane, he is sentenced to live out his twilight years at the Shady Oaks Retirement Home. Refusing such a fate outright, Carl decides that night on a plan. He attaches thousands of helium balloons to his house, and when the Shady Oaks folk arrive the next day to take him away, Carl and his house are lifted into the sky by these thousands of balloons. His destination? Paradise Falls. But there's a catch. That young boy scout, Russell, has accidentally stowed away on Carl's floating home, so now they're kind of stuck together on some adventure. They pilot through a nasty thunderstorm and land on a cliff very near but not at Paradise Falls. As they comically drag the still-floating house towards the falls, they add two more characters to their little band, Kevin, a huge, colourful, exotic bird, and Doug, a talking dog. It turns out Doug is part of a pack of dogs that are in fact hunting Kevin. Russell is especially fond of Kevin the bird, and we also learn that Russell's own father had abandoned him and that he desperately wanted the assisting the elderly badge so that his father would be there at the ceremony to present his badge. Anyway, eventually the dog pack finds Carl and his crew and they take him back to their master. Surprise, their master is the adventurer that no one believed, Charles Muntz, and the bird he's been obsessively chasing all these years is none other than Kevin. The now deranged and obsessive Muntz sets a trap and captures Kevin, and Carl and Russell run for it. But Russell is devastated to lose Kevin to such a bad man and makes Carl promise he'll rescue him. Carl refuses, putting the task in the none-of-my-business basket. Carl has only one thing on his mind, to drag the house to Paradise Falls. Slowly and alone, he does, in fact, make it there. And as he parks his house there and sits on his couch, he sighs and wonders why he still doesn't feel satisfied. It is there that Carl rediscovers Ellie's childhood adventure book and realises that the supposedly blank pages after arriving at Paradise Falls were not blank at all. In fact, they were already filled with many, many moving photos of their married life. And at the end, there was a note scrawled from Ellie encouraging Carl to have a new adventure once she's gone. Insert sniffles and tears. Inspired and encouraged with the permission to move on, Carl's heart begins to move outwards again, and so he decides to follow young Russell back to Munz's blimp. 
There, Carl and his once childhood hero have a final showdown, which is very funny. They somehow convert all the pack of dogs and of course rescue Kevin the bird. Then in a poignant scene, Carl finally allows the house he has been bound to since his wife's death to be cut loose and reverently watches it drift away into the clouds forever. Carl and Russell then fly back home, where Carl actually stands in the place for Russell's absent dad at the Wilderness Explorer Ceremony. But instead of pinning Russell with the assisting the elderly badge, Carl bestows him with the highest honour he possibly could, the Ellie badge, aka the grape soda bottle badge that Ellie had given him decades before. Then they do a beautiful father-son thing and go for ice cream together to celebrate. The very final shot of the film shows that Carl's house, despite him finding new meaning in his life, had providentially floated away to Paradise Falls after all, just as they had dreamed long ago. Okay, so there's the beautiful story in summary. And I do recommend you see it for yourself after this episode if you haven't already done so. I will now offer just two areas of reflection that are inspired by the film. The first is what the film can teach us about the process of loss and grief. The second is what the film can teach us about the experience of navigating broken dreams. Hmm. Now, I'm aware that even at the start of our exploration, both of these topics are quite sensitive and personal and may still be touching on a sore spot for some of us. I reverently embrace this possibility and encourage us to journey together in a prayerful way. I, for my part, will try and slow down a little and respect the sacred wounds in our hopes and in our memories. First, about the process of grief. The story of Up pretty much follows Carl's journey through the grief of losing Ellie, who was the light and love of his life. While grief is usually associated with the death of a loved one, it really donates the experience of losing anything significant to us. For example, we can experience grief when we change schools, a friendship ends, we move to another country, we change careers, uh, realise we're very sick, and of course, when we're met with a broken dream. And thanks to people like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, there is already much available literature on the stages of grief. You know, things like denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then finally acceptance. We won't really be exploring these topics today, for I am more interested in what the process of grief looks like in light of our faith. The Bible is certainly not silent in this regard, for many characters themselves experienced deep loss, including Job, Naomi, Hannah, King David, Mother Mary, and indeed the entire nation of Israel when it was in exile. Most significantly, even Jesus was grieved at different times and mourned in the scriptures. For example, after his friend Lazarus dies, Jesus went to the village of Bethany, where his friend had been buried. And when he saw Martha and the other mourners crying, he also cried. This is astounding, really, because our Lord mourned, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and that death was ultimately not final. What's going on here? Well, Jesus chose to partake in the grief of the immediate moment. Just because we know in faith that the sun will shine again, it does not take away the pain of losing something we love. 
Grief can be understood as a natural continuation of the love, not the denial of it. The great C.S. Lewis says, quote, The pain now is part of the happiness then. That's the deal. End quote. As such, here on earth there is always a season for grieving, and when it is such a season, we should be free to give grief its moment. Ecclesiastes says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Letting go of someone or something we cherish is always a process and one that has to take its own time. There is no such thing as a set period of time to grieve, and certainly Carl in Up needed much time and practical support in this process. There was, after all, in the film, never a point where the audience was like, oh, I wish Carl would just get over Ellie like that. For we intuitively knew it was a journey he must take. Yet, by the end of the film, we also intuitively knew that it was right that he found the means to move on, without in any way dishonouring his love for Ellie. This is what makes the film so subtly profound. Grief, especially of losing a loved one, is always a paradox. It is the paradox of letting someone go in this lifetime, while at the same time honouring their memory forever. How this actually works out in real life is always a mystery, and hence grief is sacred terrain indeed. If we could use the house that Ellie and Carl had built as an illustration of Carl carrying his grief, we can see how much Carl is very much attached to the house, literally, for most of the film. By the end of the story, however, he learns not only to empty the house of its contents, but also to let it go, quite literally, into the clouds. And not because he loved Ellie any less, but because he discovered that Ellie was so much more than the house, and that her influence upon him would always be within, in his heart, and not in the external world. There was no shortcutting to this realisation, though. In some ways, Carl had to physically, ritually take the house all the way to Paradise Falls in order to let it go. What's the message here? Well, wisdom tells us that there is something significant about the physical rituals we perform as part of our grieving process. Physical activities like cleaning up the old room of a loved one, having a farewell and thank you ceremony at an old workplace, creating an album, burning the items of your old sinful life, or even doing something to spoil yourself, these are all ritualized ways of celebrating and letting go of a love. As embodied spirits, grief needs to be processed physically as much as spiritually. And as Christians, we who so celebrate the fleshly incarnational dimension of our faith, we too must also consider how our grief can be processed in physical ways too. We'll now explore the experience of navigating our broken dreams. If Carl being tethered to the ballooned house could be understood as his attachment to Ellie's memory, then the building of their house at Paradise Falls could be understood as the dream they had never fulfilled. While this is the most obvious example of the broken dream in the film, the theme actually manifests in many other ways too. 
For example, there's Carl and Ellie's beautiful dream of having many babies, only to surrender to the fact that Ellie couldn't conceive. Then there's also Charles Munt's great dream of being the ultimate adventurer out there, before his dream turns instead into an unhealthy obsession with capturing Kevin. Then there's young Russell's dream of having his absent father care for him and pay attention to him, a dream that in the end technically wasn't fulfilled, at least not in the way he wanted at the start. Like each of these characters, our life dreams can take on many forms. Could be writing a novel, travelling to a foreign country, achieving a level in sports, starting a business, getting a promotion, walking the Camino, climbing Everest, getting into a course, attaining the perfect spouse, raising the perfect kids, finding the one. (laughs) These are all noble ambitions in their own right. But how do such dreams marry up with our walk in faith? Well, God gives us the faculties of desire and imagination, and to the extent our dreams are correctly ordered to all that is good, true, and beautiful, our dreams can in fact be holy and God-given. However, it is also possible for our dreams to become distorted and all-consuming, like what happened to Charles Muntz, whose obsession with capturing Kevin resulted in his own demise. How might Charles Muntz be in us too? How might the enemy be taking a desire that is inherently good and holy and turn it in on itself? Dreams, no matter how attractive, are not to be confused with God himself, for only God is absolute. While we hold on to our dreams lovingly, we hold on to them lightly, knowing that even our dreams are gifts from God, and not God himself. To constantly check we have a simple detachment from our dreams is already a great step towards navigating a broken dream. It becomes the difference between a healthy grief and a tragic despair. And I needn't spell out how tragic the latter can be. See, the witness of the saints reminds us that even when all seems lost or failed, look again. Because after what Jesus accomplished on his resurrection, Christianity doesn't believe in any final defeat, dead end, or even broken dreams. For Christians, there are no broken dreams, only transformed ones. The Old Testament Joseph didn't have his childhood dream broken when he got betrayed and thrown into prison and sold into slavery. Rather, God was waiting for his time in Egypt before his old dream would bear fruit and save not only the nation of Egypt, but his own too. See, why Up is so moving is that it handles the theme of broken dreams with reverence and shows how broken dreams become transformed, even transfigured, if we are able to let go of our old dream. It was only when Carl lets go of Ellie's house that he realised he could in fact be a father after all to father the young Russell right in front of him. Who would have known that decades after his own childlessness, providence would grant him such a blessing? Likewise, Russell's dream of having his dad present at the scout ceremony fails. But in his faithfulness to love all those that were around him, he is rewarded Carl, the father he never had, and the coolest adventurer mentor all rolled into one. Then of course, The big reveal in the movie is when Carl realises that his wife's dream of adventuring to Paradise Falls had already been transformed for Ellie long ago. The real adventure was found in their married life, 
not in the pursuit of something somewhere out there. As it turns out, the spirit of adventure was something within, not without. A fact that had been right before Carl's eyes the entire movies, but he saw it not. What heartfelt dreams might be unfolding before your very eyes today, but you may not have the eyes to see yet. One final detail I'll point out. I love the fact that the name of Carl and Ellie's dream place was called Paradise Falls, a detail that the Christian director of Up, Pete Doctor, wouldn't have chosen randomly. With references to heaven, or the place where paradise falls to earth, (laughs) Up is suggesting that all our dreams ultimately find their true character in light of heaven. Nothing in this life, even our sweetest dreams, can ever fully fulfill the soul. Rather, what begins earthly should in turn blossom spiritually. And this is why I shared that mysterious G.K. Chesterton quote right at the start of the film, right at the start of the episode, uh, about the balloon and the mole. Think of that metaphor as an image for the dreams that we have. One mistake is if our dreams are purely spiritual and abstract, this would be like that balloon floating into the sky. Another mistake is to make our dreams too worldly and temporal. This would be like the mole burrowing into the ground. Rather, dear friends, our dreams should be like that magnificent tree, whose roots are nourished from the things of this world, but his highest branches reach for the things of heaven. So that concludes our reflection today on Pixar's Up, and I pray I did this beautiful work of art justice. For your practical pilgrim reflection, I thought I'd suggest to you a story about a very recent saint, Saint Charles de Foucault, who was only canonised in May this year. This desert-dwelling playboy-turned-saint is inspirational precisely because his entire life appeared to be a failure and a series of broken dreams. And yet after his death, his legacy and impact bore enormous fruit. He was also a man accustomed to grief, having lost both his parents at a young age and later in life, everyone who he had hoped would join his order ministering to the Berbers in the Sahara. As such, Charles de Foucault is a beacon of hope for all of us navigating a broken dream with God. If you're interested, I'll leave a link to a short video introducing his life in the show notes and on the website. Charles de Foucault, pray for us. (laughs) Till next time, dear pilgrims, journey forth, take care, and God bless. Bless.